Hello and welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd and I'm speaking to you from Northern California where I'm visiting my parents for the holidays and I want to wish you and your family a very happy holidays as well. It was here nearly one year ago that the Kind Mind Podcast was launched and I remember shortly before that I purchased a new laptop for the first time in my whole life and I sat down and figured out what this podcasting business is all about. And I'm very glad that you encouraged me to do that because here we are a year later and 21 episodes in. And thousands of people have been listening around the world and I've received messages from other countries. And um, it's very inspiring to know that it's meaningful for people and helpful around the world. And so I will continue to create content. This happens to be the time of the solstice, which means it has been the darkest day of the year, or the shortest day of the year, which also means the return of the light. The winter solstice is a good symbol for the spiritual journey, and historically for me, in the winter months, those have been the times when I've been more introspective both creatively and uh, meditatively. And it's a metaphor for when the outer world in life gets completely dark. Sometimes the only light that can be found is within one's own heart, and that needs to be nurtured and protected. It is an opportunity to go inward and recharge our energies. But It being the darkest day of the year, it means every day from now on will continue to bring more light into our life. So it's also like the yin-yang symbol. In the, the dark side is the seed of light, which means that summer is on the way. On the first day of summer, it means that winter is on the way. So the seed of the other is always there. Also, it is the season of giving and the season of kindness. And studies show that when you buy something for someone else, it generates more happiness in the brain than when you buy it for yourself. And uh, this being the Kind Mind podcast, this is the first time that an episode is going to directly deal with the science of kindness. And when I listen back to these episodes, I often feel like I wish I had said it better. And there's a part of me that thinks, It's probably not good enough to post, but then I work through that and I share it anyway because I have intentionally used the episodes from live recordings, live talks, which means that it's not my intention to have a perfect presentation. What my aim is, is to encourage ongoing conversation. And so I may not remember things perfectly. I may not... Uh, be able to access all the details of particular studies or information about the brain. But I encourage you to look deeper into anything you find interesting. And anything that I may have gotten wrong, I'm very open to that. And uh, I'm not so concerned about being right, but I am very curious and interested in getting it right together. So I hope you'll feel inspired to go deeper into this topic And um, I talk about how we've gone from a more violent world to a less violent world, but there is still much further to go. 
An example that I'd like to share is if you, uh, if you look at violence in children's television, there's 4.8 scenes of violence per hour of television programming, and it may seem like a lot. But prior to television, there were 52.2 scenes of violence in one hour of children's storytelling. So this is an example of how we're making progress towards a kinder, more humane world. And if you want to learn more about those statistics, there's a book that I reference in this episode called Better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, I also talk about a study of some of the biology underneath kindness, including vagus nerve activation. The vagus nerve is the longest set of nerves. Vagus is Latin for wandering. They travel from the top of the spine down the body. And um, I don't mention it in this episode, but I would like to mention it here that the, the, the research that I talk about is being conducted by psychologists and Professor Keltner at UC Berkeley. And they found that the activation of the vagus nerve that is involved with compassionate responses to images of suffering is less and less in sub test subjects as you account for accumulated wealth. So in the highest socioeconomic strata of subjects, the researchers find the least biological response to suffering in terms of vagus nerve activation, but I'll talk about that more in this episode. And although it were in a kinder, safer world than we have been in the past, we have instant access to images of suffering all over the world. And all you have to do is pay attention to the news at this time. I don't even have to go into it because you probably already know the things that are going on and the people around the world who are vulnerable and marginalized and the phones that we hold in our hands that can show us where the suffering is happening all over the world, it, it's making our world smaller. And it's, it's creating the need for us to widen our circle of compassion and to see more people on this planet as our neighbor, as our family. And it's very interesting that the device that is accomplishing that for us is something that is created all over the world. I don't think there's a single cell phone now that is manufactured entirely in the United States. I think it is all done abroad. For example, the, the minerals are mined all over the world. The lithium is likely from South America. The cobalt from Africa, probably from the Congo, where there are connections to child labor in the mines. And the, the assembly is from laborers in, in Asia. And when it's all put together and comes to our hands, we have a device that can show us the imbalances, the poverty, the suffering all over the world. And hopefully we'll open our hearts to each other. George Saunders is an author who I meant to reference in this talk but forgot to. He has a commencement speech from 2013 that you can look up on YouTube. But he mentions his greatest regrets in life are failures of kindness. And he narrates a very specific story in school where a girl who moved to town and came to their school and never fit in and how people teased her. And he was never not nice to her, but he thinks about her even decades later because he could have done more to be kind and to take care of her and to welcome her. 
And I really relate to that. It really resonates with me. I can think of so many failures of kindness in my own life, and it's painful. Even now, I, I think I could be so much kinder. I could be more compassionate. And that's my motivation behind the Kind Mind podcast. It's why I want to give these talks. It's why I want to study these subjects, because I want to plant the seeds of compassion and continue to grow my capacity for service. And uh, the other night here in uh, Santa Rosa, California, my mom and I went to see a movie called At Eternity's Gate. It's a reimagining of the final days of Vincent van Gogh, the painter, and it was really sad and tragic to reflect once again on the tortured artist. And I believe in his lifetime, he only sold one of his more than 2,000 paintings. And to see it on the screen portrayed artistically by the director, who's also a painter, and to witness the cruelty that was all around him is heartbreaking. And to see how how badly we cared for the mentally ill throughout history is tragic. When my mere neurons watched all the cruelty surrounding Vincent van Gogh on the screen, it just creates this surge of empathy. It reminds me of a line from a book by the Indian saint of the early part of the 20th century, named Swami Shivananda, he said, rejection by all is victory. And that always resonated with me, and I see it uh, fully in bloom in the life of Vincent van Gogh. In the movie, he's portrayed as saying that uh, maybe he's painting for people not born yet. Historically, he has another quote, um, attributed to him, I feel that there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. Finally, I uh, mentioned some sports near the end of this episode, and um, I talk a lot about basketball, and I just wanted to add that basketball has been my primary form of exercise for more than 30 years, and I really love the game. I, I, I fell in love with it right away as a young boy in Indiana. Basketball is very much a part of Hoosier life. And I think I like it because of the game within the game. Among the four American major sports, basketball is the most individualistic, which means it invites more ego. And so I see it as a, as a game of life. I used to have this t-shirt as a kid that said, basketball is life, the rest is just details. And... Because of that egoism in the sport, many players want to impose their will on the game, but in the end it never works. And so this is the challenge of letting the game come to you, of finding that balance of influencing and being effective with your teammates, but also letting go. And I enjoy that challenge, so anyways, you will hear more about that. So thank you so much for supporting this work and for sharing it and reviewing it and rating it and helping it to grow. I hope you and your family have a very peaceful holiday season and prosperous and healthy new year. And I look forward to seeing you soon.
The word kind or kindness means the quality of friendship and consideration and generosity. It's also the act of service, the performance of something generous. The word itself, kindness, has roots in Old English, which come from kin, which means that the way you would treat somebody you're related to. It has origins in other spiritual cultures around the world. In Buddhism, loving-kindness and loving-kindness meditation is an essential part or essential feature of the, the meditation and the philosophy. The Buddha's foremost disciple, Ananda, once asked him, would it be accurate to tell people that loving-kindness is 50% or half of our practice? and the other half is meditation. And the Buddha said, no, it would not be true to say that. It would be true to say that it is all of the practice. So the entire practice is cultivating compassion and loving kindness. And the word for loving kindness in Pali, in the Buddhist language, is metta. Many people who practice yoga are probably familiar with the word metta. And there is a, a practice called metta bhavana. Bhavana means feeling. So it's about cultivating the feeling of friendship with more and more sentient beings. So it starts with your family. And having a family can be a huge step towards cultivating metabhavana. You, you will spontaneously feel care for something outside of yourself in a way that probably never felt before, those who are parents. Some of my friends tell me, I never realized how selfish I was <laughs> until I had children. And to just see that shift. But expanding that more and more is the practice of metabhavana, and it ultimately includes all sentient life, not only sentient beings, even inanimate objects. I remember being in India, and my teacher once commented on the way we were taking off our shoes entering the meditation hall saying, why do you just cast them aside without a thought? Even though they're not alive, they hold the weight of your body all day and they deserve respect. And, um, and so that was kind of something different to me at the time. I, I really thought about inanimate objects and treating them with respect and kindness. And this word metta has roots in Sanskrit, which is the language of yoga and Hinduism. And the word for kindness in Sanskrit is Maitri. You can find descriptions of Maitri in the Vedas, which is some of the oldest scriptures on the planet. You can find it in the Yoga Sutras, which is the classical treatise on the philosophy of yoga. And Maitri is also a name for the Buddha. There's a prophecy in Buddhism of a future Buddha, the next Buddha, named Maitreya Buddha, which is the great friend. And he's supposed to come like when many messiahs are supposed to come in the future. So we'll see when that happens. Maitri in the Yoga Sutra is friendship. And Maitri comes from the word mitra. Mitra means, means friend. In some ways, friendship is actually a higher relationship than love. Because love comes with so many conditions. People fall out of love and then they're finished. When a loving relationship doesn't work out, that's usually the end. And that's quite different than friendship. I have a friend that I grew up with, and then we didn't see each other for 
20 years and he got in touch and uh, we met up in Washington DC when my band was playing there and we sat down had dinner he came to the show and it was as if we just picked right up from you've all experienced this before from where we left off 20 years ago because it's friendship there's no why haven't you called or you know why haven't you kept in touch you're not a good friend no it's just and he told me that night, he said, you know, even though we haven't uh, seen each other in 20 years or been in touch, I still consider you one of my best friends. And, you know, that's the quality of friendship. And so that's why it's so related to kindness, because if we can see more and more people as friends, then this metabhavana can, can manifest automatically. There's another definition of kind in English. Kind also applies to a category right? This kind of thing. And when we have those distinctions, it's actually hard to be kind. It's easier to be kind with whatever fits into our category. And there are words in our languages that always differentiate people, separate people, this kind of person, that kind of person. As uh, an addiction counselor, we've only more recently moved away from calling patients addicts. Addicts is not who they are, they're people with an addiction. So we don't really use that, that language anymore, but, but it's just an example of how we create all different kinds of people. And we're seeing this right now going on in the world, the way different situations and, and political situations are described, there's different words. And, and if they're a different kind, well, it might just be enough of a buffer to not be so affected by the suffering. The more we can think of humans being the whole, the whole family, then you bring human and kindness together. It's very appropriate that the full word is humankind because they go, they go together. And then it needs to expand from there to the whole planet, to, to the whole earth. This is a practice that can be really helpful to get yourself to a place where you don't hold on to resentment in relationships where there's tension. Because the tension and the resentment or the bitterness, it really creates poor health outcomes for people. And when they even think of loving kindness, there is certain parts of the brain that light up and there's all kinds of health benefits. But interestingly, there is a difference between altruistic kindness, which is the kindness that's not self-interested, and what psychologists call strategic kindness when people are doing something kind, but they have some other intention. They want something in return, or it will look good. Giving to charity may look good. In the brain, there are separate areas for this. So there are some benefits to both, but only one, the altruistic kindness, leads to deeper happiness and deeper uh, changes in the brain that promote long-term health outcomes. And this has been observed in fMRI uh, experiments. fMRI means putting somebody in, um, in an activity, it could be a thought experiment, while watching the changes in, um, in brain activity and, and where blood and energy go to. So it's, it's pretty fascinating to see how it's different. And I guess this is evidence for there really being something like altruism. I can think of one instance that really shines out of my mind where it was like this spontaneous moment where I was motivated by kindness without any thought of getting anything back. 
And it was when I was uh, traveling between Philadelphia and DC where I went to college. And on this particular Monday, it was in May, in DC it was already hot at that time. It was like almost 100 degrees and really humid. And the Amtrak train that I was on was full. It was at capacity and the air conditioning wasn't working. So we're crammed in here and everybody's miserable and I can just see it on everybody's faces. And all of a sudden there was this energy swelling up in me to do something. I, I couldn't describe it. It was just like this motivating force prompting me to try to help. So I'm just looking around thinking, well, what can I do? And then I spot another kid with a guitar on his back. So I can play guitar, and at that time I was pretty immersed in studying all different songs and things, so I, I thought, I'll play the guitar for them. <laughs> so I went over and I asked, can I borrow your guitar? And he's like, for what? And I'm like, I want to play for, the, for these people. It's miserable in here. Maybe some music will, will cheer us up. And he said, all right, uh, good luck. And, <laughs> and so I take it and I tune it up, and I start walking up and down this aisle in our car, singing a Beatles song or something like that. And uh, I hear people saying things like, it's bad enough the air conditioning's not working. <laughs> <laughs> but I have this, this strong <laughs> motivation to help, to serve. It reminds me of another story. I'll sidetrack for one moment here. There's this, there's this other tale about a monk who's trying to help this scorpion that's drowning and he keeps reaching to pick it up and it stings him and he drops it and he tries again and it stings him and someone's watching this repeat over and over and they say, what are you doing? Can't you see that you're going to get stung every time? And he says, well, that's the nature of the scorpion is to sting and my nature is to, to serve. So anyways, back to my story on the train. I didn't quit, so I played another song, and after a few songs, I think somebody called out for something like, you know, Van Morrison, Freebird, <laughs> which I had this really interesting version of Freebird merged with Stairway to Heaven. I called it Stairway to Freebird. <laughs> and I would just kind of play that together, and I would do that early on in a lot of uh, open mics and things like that where I was playing as a kid, uh, just to get that out of the way. And so once people knew that I could actually take requests, I probably had hundreds of songs memorized from all different eras. And they started calling, calling for it. And then there was a list of songs. And, and people started singing eventually. And uh, then after they started singing, they, they started dancing and swaying. And then people were looking into our car from the other cars and like, well, I want to be in that one. <laughs> and so they started finding ways to enter into this car. And, and, and so once people started squeezing in, you couldn't just sit in your seat anymore. People were all standing and saying, come on, you can, you can hop into our section. And arms around everybody like this, and they're swaying and we're singing, you know, all kinds of popular music. And it went on like this for the, the whole duration. And, uh, you know, people were on their way to work, people were in suits and, and uh, professional clothes, and they had sweated through it entirely. <laughs> And it was like they just forgot where they are and what they were doing. And then finally the conductor came in and I thought, okay, he's going to break this up because the whole train is in this one car. <laughs> and, uh, but what he does is he takes his conductor hat, hat off, this big hat, and he starts going around to the people and they all start putting money into the hat. <laughs> so he's collecting tips 
for me. This is my first paid performance. And, and then he comes over to me with this big hat full of money and he dumps it in front of me and, and, and I'm pulling it all together and stuffing it in my pockets and it's hundreds of dollars. And uh, so most money and cash that I had ever held at one time. But, but mind you, that was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. All I was thinking about was something's not right here. I have the capacity to make it better. And it was, it's a very sort of uncomfortable situation because the, the biggest fear that we talk about is public speaking. So just going in front of people. And this was an audience that was, you know, very tough. But after that moment, I, I realized something. Well, I realized that I could use music as a tool. I, I could be a musician. I, I wasn't scared anymore because I thought there will never be a tougher audience than, than that one. And it worked, and it was okay, and, um, and everybody came out feeling better. But it's the power of music, and it's just such a beautiful thing, because even recently I, I made a playlist for a friend, and so I started listening to music for the first time in months since I've just been listening to podcasts and audiobooks for my talks and lectures and things. And when the music started playing, I was like, oh my God, I had no idea I would feel this good from listening to these songs. So music can just totally transform you. And, I'm, and I feel so blessed that I was able to use that throughout my life um, as a, a means of, of generating kindness. Anyways, in, in spiritual uh, environments, it's usually prescribed to do some kind of selfless service. In ashrams, this is called seva. So in spiritual centers where people are practicing meditation and they're living in this community, there is this need for taking care of the place and taking care of each other. That's called seva in Sanskrit. It means selfless service. But I found that it's really difficult to ask people to be kind. It's really difficult to schedule acts of kindness because kindness requires what I was talking about in the train story. If somebody said, go play for these people and turn this thing around, at any other time in my journeys on trains, I would have said, I can't, and I don't want to, and, and you do it, you know. So I found this to be an interesting feature or dynamic in the spiritual environments that I found myself in. And when I was cleaning toilets or things like that, I found myself just annoyed and frustrated because it wasn't coming from within. Somebody's telling me to do it. So I realize now that the, the seva that could be asked or scheduled or the seva I could ask you to do is not going to be the real seva. The real seva will, will come at some point spontaneously. So how do we get it? Well, you get it in the way that the brain is designed by uh, empathy and by feeling what it's like to witness it, to see it, to be around it. And because we have something in the brain called mirror neurons, brain cells that fire both when we're performing an action and when we're observing it, we can plant these seeds of kindness by being around acts of kindness. In my case, I grew up with my mother and she was, has always been so kind. Even now, my mom works as a nonprofit attorney in California all day, every day, even on the weekends. I have to tell her to take a break, just serving the poor, trying to solve people's situations. And so being around that so much, I think it planted, planted seeds in me. And then I think grew my brain. I would like to say like I'm a kind person, but I really think it's the fragrance of being around 
very highly evolved people with compassion. And mindfulness will, will cultivate this as well. Mindfulness and meditation practice will grow more gray matter in the parietal lobe, which is on the side of the head. That is how we relate to people both physically, like how far till I reach you in space, and metaphorically or emotionally, how to put ourselves in other people's shoes. So I would prescribe to just read about it, watch it, because the scientific research shows that when people witness acts of kindness, oxytocin is released in them, that this is a, a, a natural opiate that's going to give you a feeling of being high and elevated. And then it's going to motivate that person to want to participate in that. And it's going to create a virtuous feedback loop because oxytocin creates feelings of happiness. And when people feel happy, they're motivated to serve others. And the more they serve others, the happier they become. This has been studied in, in lots of brain research. So we can generate it by planting those seeds. Look at it, study it, be around it, and then you'll grow your own capacity for it. But the potential for it is already hardwired into our design. I remember in India, I got introduced to a monk that had recently completed 12 years of silence. And they called him Moni Baba. Moni means silent and Baba means father, silent father. And when, when we made uh, contact, it felt like when he spoke, like his words were gift wrapped. Even hello, it just felt like there was an energy surrounding the word and it passed through like multiple stages of being weighed before it could pass through the gate of his mouth and be permitted the garb of speech. And his look, his look could communicate so much kindness because I could only imagine what 12 years of fasting from talking could do for one's um, understanding of communication. I can see his face this like as clear as anything because it was just like a, um, a star. It was just like radiating compassion. Which reminds me of a Roald Dahl quote, who's an author. He said something like, people with good thoughts can never be ugly. Even if your nose is wonky and your mouth is crooked and you have a double chin and teeth are sticking out of your mouth, you still can't be ugly because if you have good thoughts, they'll shine out of your face like sunbeams and you'll always look lovely. I love that quote, it's beautiful. So anyways, any questions? Yeah. Can intolerance and kindness coexist? I think so. Um, I talked about this recently up in Hinsdale at the uh, Maureen's uh, spiritual community called Speakeasy. You know, for a long time in my life, I was a complete <laughs> pacifist where I thought under no circumstances would, um, would I use aggression or, or resort to anything violent. But I, I think that there's probably somewhere on the spectrum that to tolerate something is more violent. And um, I don't know exactly where that line is, but it's just something to be mindful of, I think. It's just a thought, I'm not attached to it, and still experimenting with it. But I think that science can really help us to solve this. Without science, we have folk wisdom. And I was talking to my mom about this study about spanking. Like, 
if I just went on folk wisdom, I would just think whatever we inherited. Like, like, well, I got spanked and I turned out all right. And that's what everybody always says. But, but there's a, there are studies now that uh, researchers in Texas just completed a 50-year study of 160,000 families monitoring every detail of the outcome of the children of those families and the amount of spanks and the mental health, their uh, physical health, their financial success, their, their families, and so on, all their medical records. And this is what science is. It is unscientific to say, well, in my experience, it's like this. I mean, somebody could say, well, I did heroin growing up and I turned out all right. That's not, a, <laughs> that's not an argument for prescribing heroin to people, but it could be an anecdote. It, it could be a piece of evidence. That's all our personal experience is. We have this beautiful thing called science that can help us figure out how to improve our morality. And as it turns out, this particular study with spanking shows that it's little less detrimental than physical abuse. And, and the spanking in, in this particular study is just an open-handed strike on the bottom. So I think that we ought to just be open-minded and keep getting the results in on research. The problem really is getting too attached to folk wisdom. There is a value in that, especially when we just don't know anything, we don't have any other resource. I think there are some psychological truths, like all religions contain some psychological truths. And, but the organized institutions also get a lot of things incorrect and are on the wrong side of history a lot of times. So an open mind with this and using the tool of science can, can help us figure out what we need to be intolerant of. And fortunately, the trend from the past till now is that the, the world is becoming less violent and the planet is becoming more kind. And this may sound different to what Darwin was talking about in the um, origin of species, which gave us this expression, the survival of the fittest. But that was not an expression that Darwin ever used. In fact, he talked about sympathy for one's fellow beings as um, a quality that could sustain a society. So it'd be more accurate to say that survival of the kindest is what keeps civilization growing, expanding, and remaining healthy or becoming healthier. There's a really interesting book called The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, a cognitive scientist, who elaborately goes through all of recorded human history and presents all kinds of graphs and all kinds of statistics and data to show how the world is less violent. And it's, it's encouraging, but the world is not uh, free from violence. So we can always see all these scenes of suffering and know that there's a lot more work to be done. But we're trending in the right direction. I mean, you just think of all of the atrocities of the past, just slavery and misogyny and institutionalized racism and so on. Overcoming these things has been this big journey. So nonviolence is a core feature of kindness. In Sanskrit, in yoga, and in uh, different Eastern philosophies, nonviolence is called ahimsa, which means not harming others. And it, it has two components to it. I had the good fortune some years back of uh, meeting the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi 
His name's Arun Gandhi, and he started an institute in the United States called the, the Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. And uh, it was based in Memphis. And I helped organize a couple peace conferences that he attended. So we got to spend some time together, and he lived with his grandfather, Gandhi. And he, and he said that growing up, he, he told some stories, and one was that um, when he was writing with a pencil, doing his homework one night, the pencil was short, and so he tossed it out the window of the hut and went and got another one. And then his grandfather came in and said, where's, where's the other pencil? He said, I tossed it because it was no good anymore, it was short. And he's like, if it wasn't finished, go get it and use it until it's finished. And he's like, but I tossed it out into the yard. And he's like, well, then go find it. So he made him look for it through the night until he found it. And anyways, he said his point was that, and he said, then his grandfather sat him down and said, look, there are two kinds of violence. There's the active violence, which is when people hurt people with their words or with their actions, physically, emotionally, verbally. And then there's passive violence. And he's like, and this is an example of passive violence. When we waste things, when we don't use things in an appropriate manner, then we're depriving others of resources. And the, the followers of Gandhi used to wear this, this turban around their head, except Gandhi never wore a turban. All the followers wore the Gandhi cap, except Gandhi. And so once a reporter asked him, I don't know if it was a reporter, it was one of his followers, how come you don't wear the Gandhi cap, you're Gandhi? And he said, well, if you take off your cap, it's like 50 feet of cotton. He's like, so there's like 50 hats in your one hat, and I'm one of the 50 people who don't get to wear one of the Gandhi caps. <laughs> so there's two kinds of violence. There's the active violence, and then there's the passive violence. And nonviolence is a spiritual practice in many <laughs> traditions, which requires seeing things on a, in a deeper way. Now, I think of nonviolence in the way I think of music. We can't all be virtuosos of nonviolence like Gandhi, just like we can't all be Beethoven or Bach or Radiohead or whoever can make all kinds of exquisite music. But we all know that we need music. We need to dance a little bit. We need to sing a little bit. We need to tap on our uh, steering wheel. We need to listen to it. We need to be around it. To whatever extent we can generate and make music, we know our life's going to be better. I think of nonviolence the same way. We cannot all be virtuosos, but we have to at least be musical. We have to be at least somewhat nonviolent. And the more you can do with it, the more beautiful your life will be. I mean, Gandhi is a beautiful story, a beautiful figure in history. Same with many great figures like Jesus or Buddha or Socrates or whoever was, was kind, Mother Teresa. To the extent that we can go deeper in nonviolence, our life will be more beautiful and so will other people's lives. We can use this when we make choices. We have to decide what we're going to use, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat. So, I mean, I have had a, a pretty strict vegetarian diet. Most people think my diet's really strict who are around me. I always make it more lax when I'm with others because it's more important to me in the moment with others to just connect and be happy. Um, but when I'm alone, it's very strict. And people comment to me, you know, you have such a strict diet, how can you not have this today or whatever? And, uh, but I know that it's not that strict because in my travels in other parts of the world, especially in India, 
that there are whole societies of people with much stricter diets based solely on nonviolence. For example, the Jains. The Jains are part of an ancient religion that's older than Hinduism, older than Buddhism. Uh, it was founded by a leader known as Mahavira, a, a great uh, ascetic. And those followers, you, you can recognize them sometimes in India and other parts of the world, they usually wear a mask so as not to accidentally spit on somebody or to kill an insect or swallow an insect in their mouth. And the food that the strict Jains take, especially the Jain monks and nuns, is only vegetation above the ground. Only flowers, uh, like fruits that fall from the trees and only when they fall from the tree and uh, certain leaves. They don't eat, so they're vegetarian, but they won't eat potatoes or other root vegetables because to get the root, you have to kill the plant and you have to break up the ecosystem in the ground. And they follow it very religiously, very strictly. And it's not for me, <laughs> it's just too, too much for me because it would disrupt the harmony in most of my relationships. And so I think that would create another type of chaos. But my point is, it's beautiful to see in the communities that can practice it. The, the care and concern for all life forms, even these tiny life forms like worms and insects in the dirt and how careful they are to protect them. And so it's virtuosic. It's like music. I'm not capable of that or not suited for it, but I admire it and uh, to the extent that I can be nonviolent in my diet, I try to do so. And I found that when I'm able to do it, I get so much benefit from it. It's not just like the health benefit of having more, more greens in your diet, more of the rainbow in your diet. I think it's really important to eat the rainbow. Like kids like only one color, beige. <laughs> Fries, chicken, pasta, pizza. It's all beige. <laughs> so, anyways, um, one time after years of vegetarianism, my brother and I went to visit our grandmother on our dad's side who was in her last days with lung cancer. And she was uh, bedridden at the time, upstairs. She wasn't supposed to come out of the bed or downstairs. But she had come downstairs and made lunch for us. So it was, probably took all of the last energy that she had to do so. And the lunch was just a big pot of roast beef <laughs> and, and some buns from the store. And she, and so, and so she's struggling to talk and she's like, I, I made my special meal for you guys, and it's roast beef sandwiches. So help yourself, there's the buns, there's the roast beef, and she's coughing as she's talking, and she then sits down to watch, watch us eat. <laughs> so I'm in a moral dilemma, right? Because I'm already multiple years into my vegetarian practice alongside my me deepening meditation. And I'm like, how am I gonna just, I mean, one sandwich is like a good portion of a cow here. Um, and then on the other hand, this is my grandmother's last meal that she's ever going to prepare. And so, um, so I decided to, you know, to eat the roast beef sandwich. So I just prepare the roast beef sandwich, big old sandwich, and I eat the whole thing, and I'm like, 
probably going to be sick because I haven't had meat, let alone tons of meat, in years. But uh, nothing happened. And uh, I don't regret that decision. And after that time moving, moving forward, I realized that what I choose to do, what I buy, the clothes that I pick, and the extent that I've gone to, and my brother and I have gone to with um, making ethical business decisions with our band, with our businesses, it's really been exhausting at times to try to do the right thing and, um, and show people how, how business can be done and what tools are out there, what resources are out there. We've, we've helped other people in the music industry like learn how you could make instruments with naturally fallen trees and with, with different materials uh, other than toxic chemicals and so on. It's been a challenge, but, uh, but after that time with, with my grandmother, I realized that there, there's another level of chaos to be dogmatic about it. And uh, it was a really, I think, important lesson for me. And afterwards, I felt that, uh, that it's just something to aspire to, but not something to be dogmatic about. And I could see something developing in me, like I have X amount of years of, of practicing this or doing this. And uh, it was good to remove that. And sometimes um, when I find myself oriented in that direction of, of feeling proud of something spiritual, then it's best to just let it go, um, to avoid dogmatism. And it's interesting because the, the Buddha has a teaching about not eating meat that was uh, prepared for you. If, and so in, the, in those old traditions, when, when beggars uh, were going with their bowl, obviously if somebody gives you meat, you, you take the meat because the beggars can't be choosers, unless it was prepared for you. And then the Buddha is saying, no, that animal is killed on your behalf, and so it wouldn't be right to take it. But in my case, I took the meat that was specifically prepared for me, and that was exactly why I took it. So in that particular case, I took it because it was prepared for me, and I felt to just throw this meat away would, uh, would injure not only the animal, but it would also injure my grandmother. So, um, so I made the choice that I did. And I don't think uh, any harm came to me because, well, probably because of a number of reasons, but, but we now know that kindness actually improves immune functioning. It stimulates the digestive capacity. And interestingly, it activates the vagus nerve, which runs from the top of the spine all the way through the body. It's the largest bundle of nerves. And it activates in images of suffering ordinarily in people. But there is something that can disrupt the vagus nerve from, from becoming active, which regulates the heart, among so many other things. And this is why, it leads, why kindness leads to good health outcomes. The heart should speed up a little bit when you're inhaling, and then it should relax a little bit when you're exhaling. And to have this dynamic heart rate variability keeps a heart healthy and improves longevity. But interestingly, the more wealth one acquires, the less active the vagus nerve becomes in the face of suffering. So those in the highest socioeconomic classes have no vagus activation ordinarily when shown images of suffering compared to those of lower economic classes. Why this is, is somewhat of a mystery. But to think that I can go on materially succeeding and acquiring wealth and nothing will change about me is naive because the science is in. So 
I'm not saying don't acquire wealth. What I am saying is that be aware that there is scientific evidence to suggest that that will make you more detached from the suffering of people at the bottom. And we see evidence of this. You know, eight people have more wealth than the bottom 50% of humanity. Uh, they have the capacity to solve all of the poverty, but it's not happening. And it probably won't happen. It will only happen by people in the middle and below because of this scientific fact. But we could be different. We could acquire wealth and we could meditate and we could be mindful of this and know that we don't want to lose touch with the suffering of others. So if we practice meditation, it will protect the compassion of the person. In fact, it grows compassion. Meditation grows compassion. So we might as well acquire wealth and grow our compassion so we will be uniquely equipped to improve the world, to improve society. I'll give you five steps to cultivate kindness and uh, compassion independent of meditation. Number one is to be around kind people so that the mere neurons will activate in you and give you the feeling of what it's like to be kinder. So read about it, witness it, spend time with people who, who are adept at meditation. Those who have meditated for like 10,000 to 60,000 hours in their lifetime have extraordinary amounts of compassion. Um, this is explained in a, in a book called Search Inside Yourself, which gives um, anecdotes from different um, MRI studies of meditators with decades and decades of daily practice and they can see so much prefrontal cortex activation where there's happiness and compassion. So one is to just be around those people. That's called satsang, which means associate with truthfulness. Sangha means association. But in this case, associate with compassion. And second would be to pay attention to your own thoughts, feelings, and um, preferences, desires, and so on. To take your own temperature every day and I call this affect meteorology. We look at the forecast in the morning, why? Just to have a sense of what's going on and uh, to plan and prepare. Okay, it's gonna snow, we won't do that after all. So in a way, you're looking at the forecast to be kind to yourself. But if we looked inside ourselves to see what the mood is of the day, what the internal weather is like, you will see, you'll find that it's different every day. Some days you wake up, you're groggy, some days you're enthusiastic, some days you're bored, some days you're lethargic, some days you're motivated, some days we feel depressed. You'll just see it's just like the weather. Some days there's a hurricane, <laughs> you know, and some days it's all clear. But you will have a sense of how to take care of yourself, so that's number two. Then the third would be to do that with others. Make time to really tune in and communicate with others to try to understand what their experience is. The fourth would be then to be concerned about that. And then the fifth is to do something about it. To find opportunities to serve, to be kind. And it, it doesn't have to be anything elaborate. It can just simply be smiling at somebody, um, a kind touch when it's appropriate, to just put your hand on somebody's back or to hug somebody 
when appropriate, can be an extraordinary act of kindness that releases oxytocin, elevates both the kind giver and the kind receiver. I mean, just think when somebody compliments you and says, you know, you look really nice uh, with this haircut. <laughs> and all of a sudden, oh, you just get this, this uh, surge of energy. And so do they because they, they were being kind to you. So those are the five steps. One, be around kindness, witness it, and your mirror neurons will be firing in all new ways, planting the seeds of your own compassion. Two, be more uh, in tune with yourself. Take inventory of your own thoughts, feelings, preferences, emotions. Three, do that with others. Four, be concerned with the suffering of others. That's compassion. This is where empathy is shifting into compassion. And then five, perform the acts. There was an interesting experiment done where subjects were asked to practice six random acts of kindness per week for a month. And all kinds of health benefits came out. But, but one thing that's really interesting, for adolescents, they became less socially anxious. Social anxiety is, is almost an epidemic in America. Those who work in schools know all about it. And by instructing young people to, to be kind six times a week, to, to perform a random act of kindness, somehow removes that barrier, that social barrier, and, uh, and, and then people can overcome anxiety. So there's so many unique benefits that we're uncovering with, with these experiments. Well, probably <laughs> the strongest case for kindness is that it makes somebody more physically and sexually attractive. <laughs> so, in an experiment where, where, in China, an experiment was done where they're shown 60 photographs of random people, just the face. And they're primed in different ways. Some people are shown each face, this is a kind, honest person. This one, this is a, a mean, cruel person, and so on. And some get nothing, just the face. And, and then they're asked to rate the physical attractiveness of the face only. And those who have positive descriptors about the personality of the person find the face to be more attractive. It's like Roald Dahl's uh, quote. Those who have no description of the personality have second highest uh, rating of attractiveness and those with the negative descriptors rate the attractiveness of the faces at the lowest. And this is probably part of survival of the kindness, but there are regions of the brain that can actually transform the way we see the physical fitness of a potential partner. Because knowing about their personality and the personality being kind says something about what you can expect in the future. This is especially true for women towards men because because of all the violence from men towards women. Kindness might have been an indication that uh, there's less chance for violence here. And usually, like, you can't do this for the sake of gaining the favor of women because it activates a different area of the brain. They would then fall under strategic kindness. <laughs> and eventually, the truth would, would, would show through, the, the true colors would come out. So take time whenever you're getting to know somebody anyway so that there's enough time to see what the personality is truly like. But I would say that uh, that would be a good case for kindness, that it will actually make us more physically attractive. Beautiful people are not always good, but good people are always beautiful.
the wealthier a person is, the less they donate proportionally, proportional to everything they have. Um, it's just a, a known fact that uh, the most percentage of one's wealth or what one has is given by the poor. That is a strange phenomenon. What about a personality that's motivated by facts and figures? Well, I think facts and figures can enlighten us. I mean, to see that, to know that, makes me want to be especially careful as I succeed in life. Because I don't want to become victim to a deficit of compassion. And so what do I have to do? I, I mean, even now I'm, I'm noticing that if I don't make time for meditation, which is getting harder and harder, the more um, I agree to do more things in the community because it's usually during the time like now I would be meditating, you know, at home. So I have to find new ways to protect against those changes. But I think just being aware of it and knowing the facts, like, like I said with the other studies, that can be really helpful. That, that certainly, uh, certainly needs to be in the equation as we move for, forward as a, as a civilization. I mean, I, I see the juxtaposition of religion and science differently than, than most people talk about it. I mean, I, to me, it's more like, um, like astrology and a telescope. Like they're not, you wouldn't say, I believe in telescopes, um, but you would use telescopes. So a telescope can give you a more accurate picture of um, the planets and the stars, and it's a tool. So science is a tool, and religion comes with, with philosophies and ideologies, and within there, there are psychological truths. But in no way does using the tool of science like, need to be something that um, makes it impossible to be a spiritual person. Are there certain kinds of occupations that foster people that are outwardly and more easily kind? I've realized, like my teachers told me, like it's it's a great blessing to be in a situation where you're you're able to serve, because I hear in my travels sometimes, and and when I'm in spiritual environments, people are waiting for the moment where they can be useful, and and when you feel like you're not useful, I mean this this has really adverse effects on on our health, and why people struggle in retirement because you know they struggle to find a sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you bring up a good point. And um, there's so much happening that underwrites anything we do. I think, like, for me, this has been caused to step back from all the choices that I make. I mean, to make a choice requires so many things to happen beneath the surface. Like, the, you can put people in paradigms now with, um, with magnetic resonance imaging where the researchers can know what you're going to do before you do. <laughs> Like you could be asked to choose something that would, would activate different regions, different uh, lobes of the cortex of the brain, right? And when you're asked to make this choice, they will see the blood and oxygen going to that region of the brain before the person has consciously made their choice. And so the researchers can go, okay, they're going for the apple. And this can be as much as like seven seconds. And then the person makes their decision and uh, they know after the researchers did. So 
what I'm getting at here is like our idea of free will is, is, is not being shown to actually be that way. Uh, I mean, even if you, if you just take like the, the idea like, okay, I could make a choice. But to make choices, to do things require that you have a brain, which you didn't make, you know. And to have parents that gave you genetics that you didn't choose. I mean, maybe we chose them in a previous life, but I mean, as of right now, I don't have the factual evidence for how I chose, but I mean, I got lucky in the lottery of birth. <laughs> We're finding that like with, with autism, that there may be certain changes in the brain or differences in the brain, like the production of oxytocin, a chemical that's bonding or vasopressin, like I talked about in a previous meeting, which is, um, is a, a hormone for monogamy and humans have all different levels of vasopressin receptors and you can predict whether someone will be monog monogamous sexually or not which is Sarah, just bless you. Yeah. so there is a test but interestingly the the science the scientists that discovered vasopressin and its role with with monogamy was a was a couple at um, in Atlanta, and they chose not to find out what their, <laughs> what their vasopressin receptors are. And so th then the other feature is mirror neurons. And we don't know exactly how mirror neurons work in humans because we don't have the luxury, I won't even call it a luxury, we don't have the, the ethical ability to go into human brains and see how these these cells work, but they have done that with, with monkeys. And so mirror neurons were discovered in 1992 when an Italian neuroscientist, Rizzolatti, had electrodes uh, hooked up to a macaque monkey in their laboratory. And they thought they were monitoring motor neurons. So it was thought up until this point that cells in the brain are either for initiating action, motor cells, motor neurons, and sensory cells, sensory neurons, which fire when you're perceiving. And so they thought that they were studying the, the firing of motor cells while teaching a macaque how to pick up a peanut and toss it in its mouth. And the electrode was transmitting a signal, so when the monkey performed the action and popped the peanut in its mouth, it would, the cell would fire to initiate that action and it would make a sound, ta, 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 on the screen. And during one of the breaks, Rizzolatti's talking to his colleague, his colleague grabs a peanut, pops it in his mouth, and they hear ta, 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 ta. And they look over and the monkey's just sitting there <laughs> watching the researcher pop the peanut in his mouth. And they're like, what was that? And that was the discovery of mir mirror neurons. That, that there's actually another cell that fires when we perform an activity or when we observe it in another giving us the net experience of having done that ourselves. This is what makes it possible to watch a movie and cry. Even though the character is fictional, the story is not true, and it's just light on a screen. This is what makes it possible to be watching a Bears game and sitting on the edge of your seat, as if it's like up to you to win the game. <laughs> because the mirror neurons are firing as if it's you. You can feel, to some extent, what the quarterback feels in a high-pressure situation. And we can also feel what it's like to suffer. This is why compassion comes from the word compati in Latin, which means to suffer with. It really speaks to the, to the design that we have cells within us that can put us in the shoes of others. So 
Mirror neurons are at the heart of the empathy search, and uh, it's thought that uh, humans have them, though we haven't fully researched this. And higher primates, dogs, not cats. <laughs> Which is why dogs can sort of sense what mood you're in, right? And like if you're feeling down, they may come and put their head in your lap, but the cat will just continue to do its own thing. You know, cats have other qualities like revenge. Um, yeah. So they're highly intelligent, but they don't have the mirror neurons. Dogs, um, elephants, dolphins, I think horses. Anyway, yes. Right, which is why I, I, I lay out those five steps because that's what will lead to altruistic kindness versus strategic kindness. To be doing it for the sake of doing it, yeah, will be a lower form of kindness. But if you, if you practice in the way that I'm describing by studying the lives of great compassionate souls and then witnessing it, it will generate that activity in the brain and there will become spontaneous motivation to do good for no reason. And that's what we're ultimately trying to cultivate, like this, this inspiration and enthusiasm to serve and without any thought beyond that, like what happened to me spontaneously once on a train, which had you know, this miraculous outcome. Because I think we have this potential to really change our lives and, and change our communities and change our families and then ultimately to transform the world. I mean, to me, that little incident of me on the train, I think, speaks to our collective potential. But right, but we're not going to get there for the sake of feeling good. Because you will be going about it in the wrong way and you will miss opportunities. The real altruistic kindness sees these unique opportunities, whereas the strategic kindness can only think in a really limited way. Like I could make this donation, I could you know, buy somebody's coffee or whatever and I can watch how it makes them feel good and then I'll feel good. So there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just, it could be, it could be deeper. And when it transforms into altruistic kindness, like then miracles happen. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Certainly, certainly that brings us down. Like, to, complaints actually damage the brain. To, to hear complaints and to complain has now been shown to atrophy parts of the brain. Uh, so we have, we have to protect ourselves against that. But however, to be in those situations is the actual practice of cultivating altruistic kindness. I mean, you're not going to ultimately be kind by surrounding yourself with people who are favorable to you. You could become kinder by seeing people in those very situations 
and winning that game. So we have to see our families and our coworkers as the unique challenge of our life. Like we have to start to approach living as a challenges in a video game that we enjoy playing. In my personal experience, I've loved sports throughout my life and I still play basketball. That's why I got my hair cut because my hair was <laughs> making it hard for me to shoot. But I, I like basketball in particular because I find it to be a very good game of life since I was a kid. And because it's five on five, there's enough interpersonal things going on uh, that allow me to practice. So when I'm playing basketball at the gym, my, my goal is to be effective as an athlete, but also to not lose myself, to not lose my mind. It's so easy to become frustrated, disappointed, angry, and aggressive. And what I've realized is it doesn't matter how conditioned of an athlete you are, you're going to make mistakes. I've seen Tiger Woods miss a two-foot putt. Um, you know, we've seen Michael Jordan miss game-winning shots. And it doesn't matter how great you are, you can't control every outcome. And yet, because of the illusion of so much free will, I'll see in the game, people get mad at me. I'll get mad at them. When I win, or it, I made the shot, I feel pride. I feel like it's all because of me. I did it, Celebrate. let's celebrate. And when the other team is too good, then I feel jealous, I feel frustrated. And I find that having games like this is, is actually the, the practice. And the game could be our own family, it could be my workplace. I mean, you would think like, why would you wanna go play a sport where guys are yelling and shouting and slamming the ball at the end? And I'm, and I'm thinking, because it's a challenge that I enjoy. I had a really good opportunity for a number of years to play badminton with three other monks. And throughout my life, I've, <laughs> I've really made it a point to visit monks because I saw this uh, and people in nursing homes. At our high school growing up, there was a nursing home across the street and a convent. And I, I realized that even though the monks and the nuns are living a life devoted to God and to their spiritual practice, I know they're human beings and to not see people for a long period of time gets lonely. So I would always seek them out and I traveled to all different parts of the world and I always try to visit monks. I went to a monastery in the desert in New Mexico where the monks never speak unless a visitor comes and asks them a question. And I could see on the monk's face when I came and asked him a question how happy he was to be able to talk and sit down with somebody and connect. It's a great opportunity to be kind. But anyways, I'm playing badminton with three other monks because in the winter here, uh, there's not as much opportunity for exercise. And just sitting and meditating, you could get really unhealthy. So we set up a net and we started playing badminton. And lo and behold, the, it's me and one monk against two other monks. And so I'm the only one who's not a monk. But me and my partner are, are skilled in different ways. I'm like a lot taller than him. I'm athletic from basketball and football, so I can move around the court. But he's got a great serve and he's got a lot of power when he strikes the birdie. And the other two, they have a unique set of skills in badminton also. One's taller than all of us. He's over six foot tall. He's like 6'3 or 6'4. So he can hit really high shots. He's got a really tough serve. Anyways, everybody has a unique skill set, but we're all, but we're evenly matched. And I was going there to play for many days throughout multiple winters. 
after work. And I had no clue who was going to win. And I found myself getting frustrated with the monks. I would find myself like sometimes mumbling something to my monk partner. <laughs> like, come on, you know, how could you miss that? And then afterwards I'd be like, oh my God, I'm talking like an idiot to these monks. How can I be so insensitive? So I go, tomorrow, no matter what, win or lose, you'll be kind to the monks. But the same thing would happen. I would get frustrated, I would blame him, or I would get angry at the opposing team because they're playing so well and we can't get anything to happen. Or we're playing great and I feel good about myself. So I just started to see all that for what life is. Like we think that the good that happens is all because of me and when bad things happen, it's because of everyone else and all the other factors in my life and my upbringing and my circumstances. But when something's great, it's all because of me. And to just sort of see that for what it is and, and, and to kind of break through that illusion of free will and, and all that and know that it's totally out of my control. Whether I you know, want to or not, there were times where no matter how bad I wanted to play, I couldn't. I, everything I hit worked. And badminton's perfect for us because it, there were literally times where it seemed like I'm not even operating the racket. I can't make a bad shot if I tried. And there are other days I just cannot get it over the net no matter what. And I see this even in the greatest athletes. And that's why I like sports because I think, and I like to see how people respond to their circumstances and their challenges and their situations. It's fascinating to me. So you can take that and you can apply it to your families and to your workplaces. You're gonna get again and again, a unique opportunity to practice the loving kindness meditation that we did. People will test you, they will either inspire the worst out of you or you'll be able to stay true to yourself and be able to wish even people who are difficult in your life, wish them well. And the reason to wish them well is because, like I said before, happy people are motivated to kindness and those acts of kindness make people happier and it becomes this virtuous feedback loop. Happy people don't hurt people. It's the, the simplest thing that we forget when people are difficult in our life, that they're not happy and that there's some pain there. So hard for, for us to see it because we're so concerned about ourselves. So to try to cultivate this and practice it in your daily life as it were a challenge in a video game you enjoy playing. Yes? At some point we can see that when, when you pay somebody a compliment or you do something kind for them, you feel good, they feel good, and when you reject that, you're preventing that opportunity. Now, many of us know it's hard to accept compliments. Compliments sometimes trigger something inside of us that we just don't believe. So like someone could say, you look good, but we've been told we don't look good at some point growing up, or that we're too this or too that, too tall, too skinny, too fat, too anything. So when someone says that, it already triggers something to reject that within us. But we can still practice accepting it, even if we don't know how to use it. It's like, think of a gift that you didn't expect at Christmas, like socks or something. If you were to just throw it back at them and say, I don't need this, you know that, that it's gonna be hurtful to them. So what we can get better at doing, I think, even if we don't want to accept the kindness, is actually finding the language 
to integrate into our life. I mean, like with a compliment, I, I try to help patients who really struggle with this, especially if you have depression or anxiety or PTSD, to develop language like, thank you for saying that. I don't always see that in myself, but I appreciate you sharing that with me, which means that I've accepted it. I don't know how to use it yet, but thank you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it. Um, so I think we can get better at receiving kindness because that's going to complete the circuit. If I don't let this person be kind to me, then they can't get the oxytocin and I can't get the oxytocin and then neither of us become happier. So, uh, yeah, so that's something that I've kind of struggled with in, over time too because, you know, there's, I have an introvert, extrovert personality and, and I often want to retreat and be alone and, and people want to spend time and, and share things and, and I've learned to try to balance that because people feel good helping people that help them, you know, and, and I think, like now I'm seeing like that's really important. Yeah, so it's something that we do have to be mindful of and work on. Well, thank you. Well, ultimately kindness is about transforming ourselves and transforming the world. And it reminds me of a story of a thief who comes to the hut of a mystic in the middle of the night. And he came by mistake because what are you going to find, at least in Asia, in the, in the home of a hermit? You're not going to find anything too valuable. So he's looking around and there's absolutely nothing in this house. And the mystic comes from one corner with a candle and, and he's covered with a blanket. And he's looking around with the, with the candle. And the thief's looking at him like, what is this guy doing? He says, can I help you find what you're looking for? <laughs> And why didn't you wake me up? I could, have, I could have came sooner. And he says, but I got to tell you, I've lived here for 30 years and I've not found anything, but you seem pretty confident. So let's look together and whatever we find, we split right down the middle, 50-50. And we'll be partners. And the thief's kind of like starting to get a little confused and he's getting a little scared because he's not sure if this guy's mad or if he's some holy person who maybe, you know, has power. So he just wants to get out and he says, hey, I'm a thief. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here to rob the place. And, uh, and the mystic says, well, that doesn't matter to me. Everybody's got to be somebody. So, <laughs> and he's like, but you can't leave. After they don't find anything, he says, you can't, you can't do this to me. You can't just walk out of here with nothing. I mean, how could I live with myself? How could I ever forgive myself? A poor man came to my home in the middle of the night and left empty-handed. So he says, here, take this blanket. And then he's naked. And he puts, the, he puts the blanket around him. He's like, and he's like, but, and the thief's like, you know, so feeling so awkward. He's like, but this is all you have. And he's like, it's fine. It's warm enough in the house. It's cold out there. You take this. And, um, and he's like, but don't you realize I'm a thief? <laughs> and he's like, I already told you, that doesn't matter. Everybody's got to be somebody, got to do something. So I give you my blessing. Be the best thief. Don't ever get caught. <laughs> and, um, and, and then the, the thief says, okay, but how can I just leave you with nothing? He's like, oh, no, 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 you're not leaving me. I'm coming with you.
I gave you everything I had. You give me just a little bit of what you have when we get to your place. And I, that's fair, right? And, uh, and so he starts to walk out together. And the thief's like, uh-uh, I got a wife and kids and uh, a family and neighbors. I can't have a naked man just come home with me tonight. <laughs> and, and the mystic goes, you're right, you're right. I would never want to embarrass you. So you go, be the best thief, never get caught. You have my blessing. And after he, he runs out, the mystic shouts, wait, come back. And the thief feels as though like a magnetic energy is drawing him back into the hut. And he's like, oh my God, what's happening? Why am I going back? And he says, you didn't say thank you. Now, the mystic's saying, now, I told you, I don't, I don't mind the stealing. That part I, I'm fine with. But the manners is a, is a different story. In that department, I'm very difficult. I'm a strict man. So, please, say thank you for the blanket. He says, thank you? And, uh, and, and also, you came in, you left the door open, you left, you left the door open. I mean, I don't even have a blanket anymore. Like, <laughs> so please, shut the door on, you, on your way out. And uh, so the thief says, thank you, bows to the mystic, silently shuts the door and gets the hell out of there. And um, he's thinking about it over and over. This is the strangest man I ever met. And he's feeling so self-conscious about his behavior, about stealing. Um, and he had stolen from other houses prior to that one. So he's carrying this loot back and he's got this blanket. He's feeling moved by, by the strange personality of this mystic. And he starts to tell some people about what happened to him. And they tell him, well, you know, that's a great spiritual master who lives in the forest there. And one day, this thief gets caught in that same region. So he's brought before a magistrate. And they have multiple witnesses that say, you've stolen from me, you've stolen from me. And uh, the magistrate asks the thief, do you know anybody in this region that can testify to your character to reduce your sentence? And he says, I, I do, I know one person, the mystic. And so he explains who he is and, and the magistrate says, well, his word is worth 10,000 people's words. So if he can attest to, to your character uh, and, and can say something, to lead me to believe that you didn't commit all these crimes, then I'll give you favorable judgment. So they bring in the mystic to the stand, the hermit, and they say, do you know this man? He says, yes, that's my friend. He's also my business partner. <laughs> <laughs> the magistrate says, do you know he's being tried for stealing? Do you think that he committed these crimes? Um, do you have evidence to support that he committed these crimes? He's like, no, Your Honor. I mean, he visited me in the middle of the night. He's my friend. I gave him my blanket. Look, he has, you can see the blanket. That blanket is famous in this region. And uh, he said, thank you when I gave him the blanket. He politely shut the door when he left. <laughs> as far as I know, he's a complete gentleman, Your Honor. And so the magistrate says, well, that's all I need to hear. You're off with a warning then the the mystic goes on his way but the thief follows him this time 
And uh, the, the mystic says, why are you following me? I thought, uh, you didn't want to be with me. And uh, he said, well, nobody's ever treated me kindly. Nobody's ever called me a friend. You called me a gentleman. You called me your partner. And you gave me everything you had. And now you saved me from, uh, from trouble. So I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. And, um, and so the mystic says, okay, so we are partners. <laughs> and uh, he's like, but what I have to give you is not visible. It's invisible. And uh, friendship, this quality of kindness, has been described as milk and sugar. It's the invisible part, but it makes life sweeter. Remember I said about open-mindedness and uh, using the telescope of science to help us get better at being kinder. And when we learn that things are not effective and we have facts, we can use those facts to do better. And um, there's a poem by Rumi that I think just totally summarizes this need for open-mindedness and how it leads to spiritual transformation. He says, Be helpless, dumbfounded, unable to say yes or no. Then a stretcher will come from grace to gather us up. We are too dull-eyed to see that beauty. If we say we can, we're lying. If we say no, we don't see it. And that no will behead us and shut tight our window onto spirit. So let us rather not be sure of anything besides ourselves, besides our own consciousness. And only that. So miraculous beings come running to help. Crazed, lying in a zero circle, mute, we shall be saying finally with tremendous eloquence, lead us. When we have totally surrendered to that beauty, we shall be a mighty kindness.